Hello, and welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. It's uh, the show about posting and stuff about posting. Um, my name is Hussein. Uh, you, you know where to follow me if like stuff is still working, I guess. Phoebe's not with us today, uh, so it'll just be me. But with, this is really good because uh, we can, uh, we're joined this week by a uh, very cool guest, someone whose writing I've read for like a while, who I've re- really enjoyed for a long time. Uh, and also on a subject that we haven't talked too much about, but I think is like really important. And this novel kind of really takes together the sort of imperative, like the nature of this particular issue. And it has some very interesting thoughts on technology and the ways in which technology can both be used and to hinder activist movements. Um, I won't reveal too much right now, but what I will do is introduce uh, Stephen Markley. Stephen is an author. He, uh, re- he published the critically acclaimed Ohio, a novel, has also written published his book in Tales of Iceland. But on this episode, we're going to be talking about his latest book called The Deluge, which is published by Simon & Schuster. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Uh, and yeah, can you tell us, uh, especially for our UK audience, because I don't know if it came out in the UK officially, uh, what the deluge is about and, uh, yeah, the things that sort of led you to write it. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, no, the deluge did not come out in the UK. So you, I think you have to order, order the American version. Uh, it is a, an epic of the climate crisis. Uh, it basically imagines the near future as uh, this crisis metastasizes, as it, as it sort of uh, leaks into every single corner of our uh, lives. And, um, you know, it has seven characters and it's sort of told from the years 2013 to 2040. So moving from the recent recognizable past, our reality into what prospectively we will all be living through. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like, it's such a, well, I think one of the things that, the, every review that I read was like, oh, it's such a big novel. It's such like, and I'm not going to lie, it is. I think it came out to, and the, on the e version that I read, it came out to like just just under a thousand. Um, but you can go, but you can like, I, I read it remarkably fast, bearing in mind that I'm yeah. quite a slow reader. I don't know if that like means anything to anyone. Um, but what I was also going to add was that I think for like people who kind of knew a bit about the climate catastrophe, kind of like sort of, you know, vaguely like knew the headlines and stuff, this was a, one of the first things I read. That really sort of, I, I could not to say that I think because in our line of work, like we kind of understand some of the academic arguments, like it's part of our job yeah. to sort of like talk to people who are. But if I was to sort of give a text to someone who was not necessarily able to kind of grasp the very human stakes of the climate catastrophe and like how it intersects into even kind of like the most sort of unassuming and mundane lives, I think your novel was a really good. Uh, it would be a really good kind of uh, way to give it to, or, or, or like a really good thing to kind of give one of those readers. As you mentioned, like there are sort of multiple characters, um, like an array of characters actually that range from like climate scientists to different kinds of activists. And I, I, I'd be interested in like talking about the differences between those activist groups later on, uh, like, you know, VC funds, ordinary guys who like don't really like, uh, like throughout the novel, like seem to just be rolling off the punches and like, you know, still don't yeah. really have kind of these big takes on climate crises and everything. Um, and without like, I, I don't want to like use this podcast to talk about like the writing style, like throughout, but I did mm-hmm. wonder whether like what the intentions were behind setting out a novel in this way, only because I think some of the novels that I've read where climate catastrophe um, is kind of a core part of a storyline. I feel like it can often like that type of stuff can often get lost. And maybe it's because the ways in which like the author is trying to sort of like describe the stakes kind of takes you out of it. So I wondered whether like, what were the things that you were reading? What were the things that you were sort of looking at that, 
um, what you were using to write the novel, but also um, the way in which the novel is actually constructed, was that done like intentionally as a way of like kind of describing the ways in which like, even the people who are not engaged with this topic are sort of affected by it? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I, I wrote the book over the course of 12 years, uh, with basically the first draft taking almost uh, a decade, roughly. Um, and in that time, obviously, things changed. I shifted ideas. I, I you know, abandoned characters, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but I think always I had this in mind that what I wanted to do was look at the science and look at the evolution of how this uh, crisis would progress. And like I, you know, like I was putting fireflies in a jar and shaking the jar. So finding the characters who would inhabit this world was, you know, sort of the secondary element to making sure the plot of the novel would rigorously adhere to what we were seeing um, mm. or would see in, in the coming decades, right? Uh, and so when I went looking for characters, of course, I was looking for people who were deeply involved in this crisis. And, and you know, it was interesting watching sort of activist types I had been concocting in the early 2010s suddenly become real people mm. in, in the world and to various degrees. Mm. It, um, the scientist characters were always more grounded in sort of the people who have been warning us for upwards of 40 years, uh, what is, what is happening, what's going on. And then, you know, I, I knew I needed people who don't care about the climate crisis, who don't even think it's real. I knew I needed them inhabiting the book and seeing that on the ground perspective as the world changed around them. Um, mm. and you know, it was an intellectual project of, of, of trying to see, you know, what I truly believe is the greatest crisis to ever befall humanity, um, to see it through that variety of eyes, at least in an American context. Mm. One of the characters that I was really like interested in is actually like the, I think the first character introduced in the novel, uh, uh correct me if I'm pronouncing his name is Anthony Petrus. Um, yes. and I, and I, and I found like what was really interesting about, cause I, I was, I'm thinking about it now, just like thinking about the journey that Petrus sort of goes on, um, and at the beginning, we sort of we're introduced to him as kind of like a sort of it feels like sort of a bit of a closed off academic, someone who's just like sort of focused on um, like one very kind of seemingly niche aspect of like geochemistry. I, yeah. I feel geochemistry, but along those sort of lines. And then as we sort of go through the novel, like we see that he kind of reluctantly joins some activist groups. He kind of wrestles with some of the ideas that these activist groups have. Um, you know, there a lot of like his incentives are driven by like very personal responses. Also, just like having to wrestle with his own, uh, you know, we're, we're, I, I don't want to say like doomerism, but his own sort of like feelings that the institutions that he has to work within are not providing like a sufficient response to this crisis. Um, and I sort of wondered like when you were speaking to scientists or like people who are working in the science of climate change. And I think especially now when, you know, lots of sort of right-wing politics, but lots of reactionary politics likes to frame academic work as sort of being, um, you know, sort of being part and parcel of activism, but also where like lots of scientists are now kind of trying to justify, but no, our work is important both for funding and for development because, you know, we are sort of activist scientists. Um, I wondered whether yeah. like, uh, when you were speaking to climate, climate scientists, how did they sort of view their work? Um, and did, do like, did you see that they sort of go on the same journey 
as Petrus. Like I, I, I vaguely remember you mentioned a scientist called Jim Hansen. Jim Hansen? Yes, I was just um, going to bring him up. Yeah, yeah, but like were there others who kind of like are sort of going in, like kind of seeing that no, their work kind of fits into this much broader model of like political um, activism, political science, and so on. Right. Well, let let me take. James Hansen is a jumping off point because when he testified in front of Congress in 1988, there were a lot of scientists who were like, this is an inappropriate, you know, uh, um, use of one's time as a scientist. Like you're supposed to look at data. You're not supposed to get into politics. What has happened since then, of course, is that all the science is screaming. And I think it becomes very hard for uh, any human being as a moral agent to look away from the clear implications of what, of what the science is telling them. Um, now I can't speak for any particular scientist and I don't, I don't plan to, but I think at this point, most people who work in fields related to our biosphere, <laughs> which is a pretty broad set of range of, uh, uh, of fields, um, you know, they're looking at what's happening and, and feeling that moral imperative, uh, to, if, if nothing else, continue with their work and bring it to the public's attention. Mm. Yeah, I can kind of like, because I, I guess um, I have not like necessarily background, but like I studied like anthropology for a bit. And I think there are like some sim- mm-hmm. sort of similar arguments in there where like, or there is like a kind of a sort of like similar, I don't know if culture is the right word, but definitely like sort of like uh, disputes by sort of anthropo- anthropological schools as to even just the notion of like the Anthropocene, right? And like whether it is like the role of an anthropologist to kind of be an activist to sort of Right. Um, or to, or to just sort of be like a passive observer, and I, and obviously like being a scientist, like with with like other forms of science, that that approach may not be the same. But it was interesting to kind of think about sure. my time in anthropology departments and kind of think, oh, like these similar debates were kind of happening over there as well. Well, and let's not let's not science and activism do make somewhat poor bedfellows, and the character in my book even mentioned like says that out loud, right? Like the idea yeah. that you're taking a, precon- a preconceived idea and then trying to arrange data around it. It's something that's happening all the time yeah. um, across, uh, you know, various fields and ideas. And uh, it, it, it is a dangerous position. But uh, at the same time, again, the overwhelming uh, evidence of what's happening is, is so urgent that I think most scientists find yeah. themselves in a position where it's hard to do anything but become active. Mm. I think the urgency thing is like a really good, is a really interesting point because I think from what I remember um of like the other the peter sark it's like one where he's sort of almost motivated by this sense of urgency right um in both like yeah. a micro scale and, and sort of a macro scale as well and one of the frustrations that we find that kind of is embedded into lots of different characters but in particular with him is that like he can sort of see the objective like what is actually happening and he can understand it on a scale that basically none of the characters really can do or if they can yeah. they're sort of like held back by the institutions that they have to work within having to make these compromises. And for Petrus, it's very much the case of like, you can't make a compromise when you're facing like climate disaster, right? Like there's no way of, right. you know, you can't just curb it or minimize it and all these types of things. And yeah, I, I wonder, cause like you obviously like you've kind of written about politics and like other uh, books and projects that you've done. And I wondered about like, I wondered like in terms of your characterization of Petrus, whether, um, yeah, like how you were sort of thinking about like the actual politics of, uh, addressing the climate change, at least in the U.S. anyway, um, and in terms of like where you know for for our sort of like British, British European listeners, where is the U.S. right now in terms of 
uh, its legislate like uh, its legislative acts again, like on climate change. Um, I from what I remember, although I don't really know too much about it, um, a bill was passed mm-hmm. that you were yes. quite surprised. But yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, so I was in the uh, <laughs> difficult position of trying to c- finish this book about the near future, as after a decade, the Democrats had finally put together potentially a climate bill that would have a, a you know a very positive effect, right? And so I was finishing my final drafts of this book as that bill was being debated. There was this senator named Joe Manchin who was kept waffling back and forth on whether he would support it or, support it or not. And I turned in the final, final, final draft of the book uh, after Joe Manchin had declared the bill dead. And I was like, okay, well, this at least matches up with my book. Then Joe Manchin, of course, screwed it up. He helped pass the bill. Uh, and so the the inclusion of the Inflation Reduction Act will be in the paperback version because I quickly made edits. It just couldn't reach the hardcover, right? But yeah. I think what what at least, and this is me patting myself on the back here, of course, but the future I had created basically synced up exactly with what that bill was, right? Which yeah. was an all carrots, virtually no sticks package. Um, yeah. I, I should say that I am an, a fervent supporter of that bill, and I think it's going to do. Uh, a lot of good in terms of this of this really uh, dire situation, but um, you know it is it basically uses tax incentives and and lavishes money on certain industries in order to jumpstart renewable energy and really get it uh, going as like a serious alternative to fossil fuels. Uh, that's the aim of the yeah. bill in, in broad strokes. But I should also say that I don't want to shortchange the further action the administration is taking right now, which is a serious set of standards uh, on power plants and vehicles. Um, You know, there are two methods we have to tackling this problem. One is, uh, you know, sort of the standards. The other is uh, investment, right? Those are sort of the Mm -hmm. two tools that that the Western world has settled on in terms of how to move forward. So um, I, I do give the administration a lot of credit. And I think in just the last few years, I've felt a sense of like, okay, I can see the keyhole through which the world can slip through this very, very frightening time. So there's that at least. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I was, I was sort of going to add about like, I was I, the other, the other sort of like asking question was much more was about like, I think about political pragmatism, I mean, pragmatism, I guess, um, which again is like, yeah. a, like a theme that you sort of interrogate throughout the novel um and you know the sort of dis- the, the disparate characters like some of whom kind of believe in the virtues of pragmatism the ones who sort of believe that like it's kind of the best of bad solutions uh i.e. I to sort of like avoid kind of violent vigilantism um others who sure. sort of reject it entirely um and i guess i wondered like with the passing of that bill and i guess like sort of proof almost that like no like even within like a pretty corrupt system and even one where you won't sort of get everything that you want, like maybe like political pragmatism is a better solution or, or is sort of like the, the kind of not solution per se, but like a better way of like organizing people. I wondered like how your thoughts on that like evolved in the, in the course of like writing the book. And I guess even afterwards when, um, yeah, when, when I guess it's still kind of quite easy to sort of look at even, you know, that bill, other things that have happened in Europe, for example, and to see that like, yeah. well, regardless, like the fossil fuel industry is still kind of well, they're either sort of like being incentivized quite lucratively to uh, to change, or in a lot of cases, are sort of being told, "No, it's completely fine to kind of continue what you're yep. doing for like short term gains." Like, you know, yeah. How how how? What are your thoughts on like 
uh, or did your thoughts evolve on like sort of the uses uh, of political pragmatism throughout writing the novel and publishing it? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a really complicated question and something I think that my opinion uh, probably changed from year to year as, as I worked on the book. Um, you know, I probably started with, with much more sympathy. Uh, well, no, that's not true. That's not true. I think the book tries to articulate or demonstrate that this situation is so unique that we don't really know what will work in the end. And we don't know if, if we can do it right. Like that. It isn't like other social movements in history. It isn't like the standard movement uh, to free populations from oppression or to depose a king or, you know, to end a colonial power structure. It is entirely new because it's because, uh, you know, our energy systems, our agricultural systems, our transportation systems are so integrated into every single facet of our lives, of everyone's life on this planet, that the sort of the rapid uh, changing out of all these pieces of infrastructure is a project unlike anything humanity has ever undertaken, right? And there are ways in which I sometimes think, uh, and particularly when I was speaking to, to more radical people about uh, the climate crisis, where it's almost like, you know, pragmatists have their blind spot, but so do the radicals, right? Mm. And, um, you know, I, I'm just thinking of this conversation I was having with, you know, somebody who was, uh, you know, a, a Marxist, um, for sure. And, but just like trying to imagine how their line of thinking was about if you want to build housing as a universal right, you know, I live in California where right now housing is, is a disaster and we have like this epic mm. homelessness crisis. Um, but if you want to build all that housing, it takes a lot of cement. Uh, there's yeah. a way in which it ignores the physical substrate of what we're all dealing with. Cement is an incredibly carbon intensive material. And so without uh, decarbonizing cement, we're not yeah. going to get anywhere. You know, without uh, figuring out processes that can create a syringe for a universal healthcare system, uh, without, mm. you know, carbon fuels, we're not getting anywhere. Um, so there's yeah. this way in which we, we have to attack the actual problem of the physical substrate. And that is a way more difficult task than uh, a lot of people ha uh, imagine when they're, when they're simply saying, look at the way we use energy, look at the way we use resources, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, you know, you have to look into those corners of society in every single facet and see how we switch it out, right? Yeah. And, I, and there's like aspects of your book, which again, address that as well, especially in like the global South, where like that type of transition, like economically takes much more like, um, would, would like be, would take much more of a toll, not least because like the sense of the ways in which like, car, like, uh, what, not the right, not carbonization, but I guess like the, the kind of creation of pollutions and stuff are sort of concentrated, like Western capitalism sets it out. So like, it's sort of more concentrated around that. So it like, there is a much more significant impact on both societies that perhaps like, you know, especially, I, I don't know, like, even like certain like Western, yes. like environmental organizations tend not to sort of want to address. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and it's such, it's yeah. such a, a Rubik's cube, right? Um, and that's, mm. that's why I think like, uh, for me, it's, it's been like, okay, it's, it's easy to be uh, terrified and enraged about all this and we should be right. But it's also like addressing the issue is is very complex. And that's why like it wasn't until I was writing the second half of the book and sort of beginning to talk to all these incredibly smart, incredibly boring people uh, about what actually has to happen that I, I, I began to form um, 
sort of a more cogent view about what would be necessary to change the situation. Yeah. I'd like to like revisit that in a moment, but I guess like to sort of, it sure. almost, almost kind of like uh, pivot into like one of the things that I was really interested in. One of the reasons I thought I could be a good guest to come onto this show um, is that even though the deluge is kind of present or it has been sort of written as like a novel that kind of centers around climate change. I think number one, I think like it, that's a real sort of downplaying of like all the other like, really interesting themes in that book. And one of the things I was quite interested in was the way in which you sort of conceive of technology. So um, like the use of yes. like VR, for example, the whole like system of slapdish I thought was like quite an interesting yeah. concept, both in the terms of the ways that activists use it, but also the ways in which like of kind of virtual politics kind of emerges out of both this new system and one that is kind of almost actually at the same time, like driven by um, climate politics, whether directly or indirectly. Um, before yeah. I sort of go into the questions, like for people who haven't read the book, I, I hope it's not too much of a spoiler. Uh, I don't think it is, but like, yeah, like what is like Slapdish? How did you sort of conceive of that? Especially because it's quite an interesting use of both VR and I think like AI tools that are now entering the lexicon a bit, although not in the way that you necessarily have like constructed it in the novel. Right. Uh, Slapdish is sort of the, was my idea of an all purpose um, sort of repository of where our, you know, consumer technological brains are going, right? So it's a VR mm -hmm. platform that is basically a, a social media platform as well. It's, it's you know, an all-encompassing, create any world you want, to live in any time you want, be with your friends in this, in this wild place. Uh, and, and, and the way it sort of takes over is, is, uh, is it becomes surveillance capitalism on steroids. It's everything about TikTok, the addiction, yeah. the, the surveillance, the, like every component that we're struggling with now suddenly concentrated in this incredibly potent form, almost like moving from Oxycontin to fentanyl. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's effects on our social, economic and political systems becomes incredibly acute and incredibly much, much, much more frightening than it is already, which I think it's pretty frightening as it is right now. Yeah, it also becomes like much like all encompassing as well, right? And so it's mm -hmm. kind of like you have like obviously you have sort of um, a quite radical, uh, violent sort of political force that sort of emerges out of there. And I thought one of the things that was really interesting with like so this character is called the pastor. Um, and like the political movement that sort of emerges out of that, which is kind of organized to one degree online, but kind of becomes quite chaotic in real life. I thought the augment, like how you sort of explored augmentation is really, really interesting. Um, cause I guess like we, you know, we think about, oh, you know, in terms of what would like a sort of virtual politics like kind of look like. And I, I haven't really like read anything that I'm kind of like convinced or terrified by, but I think when I was reading yours, I was like, yeah, I could definitely like sort of see this happening maybe maybe not in the sense that like a virtual reality like a kind of virtual reality side but although i mean that being said that could change but i think more just the idea that like you know you can sort of have a sort of how you kind of like contain political anger um online and then the ways in which it expresses itself outwards like and it's much more sort of chaotic and unorganized and sort of feeds other kind of much more established uh reactionary movements was quite Absolutely. frankly quite terrifying. yeah like quite terrifying um, but the other, the other aspects, and I think you touched on this when we talk about like surveillance capitalism, is the sort of like all-encompassing nature of it. And so, you know, I think one of the things I remember about the book that I, I, I made a little note of it was just like, oh, like the, like the sort of mainstream activist groups are having to organize on this platform, right? And so they're yeah. kind of like still, you know, 
uh, and they don't really have a, it doesn't seem like they really have much of a choice in the matter. Uh, you know, you have like, uh, the ways in which, you know, and, um, and then I guess like I was thinking about the other group as well, the other activist group that is in the novel, which is called six degrees. And they're much more of like the kind of, uh, I, I don't necessarily know if like, um, uh, like Kaczynski is like the right way to describe it, but definitely like people who are much more right. suspicious of like technology, who are much more aware of, I guess, like the auspices of surveillance capitalism in terms of like the act, like in terms yeah. of like how they organize activism. Um, yeah, I, I guess I wondered like in terms of uh, thinking about like Six Degrees and like their how they sort of fit contextually in the book, are they are they sort of designed to sort of be a foil to the the fierce blue fire, which are kind of like the more organized, much more institutionally ingrained activist movement, um, or do they sort of like represent more of like another sort of like anarcho element of uh, this universe that you've created? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think the Six Degrees is, uh, you know, before Andreas' mom wrote How to Blow Up a Pipeline, right. uh, you know, uh, Stephen Markley in uh, Chicago, <laughs> Illinois, was was thinking about this potentiality which is which is basically to say that um you know the, if the moral imperative is what scientists say it is surrounding cl- the climate crisis which i do believe it is uh why aren't we blowing up pi- pipelines yet and that's six degrees right. of stance you know they they call themselves armed propaganda right um uh, eking out uh carbon emission reductions and so their take on the situation is that you know, the mainstream environmental movement is, is moving far too slowly, uh, and is ineffective and is not, um, uh, you know, actually up to the task, uh, of stopping the fossil fuel industry and the great evil it is doing. And so, uh, it embarks upon a campaign of bombing pipelines and other fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, in order, in order to uh, address the situation. Yeah. And I guess like one of the things, like when I, when I think about like the way in which, like the slapdish social network is used, but also just like other forms of like surveillance technology. One of the questions that emerges, and you actually mentioned this when we were like talking uh, off mic, was about um, the ways in which like these types of technologies can both advance and hinder and sometimes undermine these movements. It, to me, it's sort of yes. the kind of suspicion of this technology that we can see with like six degrees is sort of emblematic, like kind of touches on something that I think is quite real and quite vivid, which is like, you know, the kind of use of these surveillance technologies kind of serves two purposes. One is to sort of, in a very direct way, like undermine through like surveillance, interrogation, arrest, and so on. But the other aspect of it and the fact that it becomes all encompassing uh, works on like a much more, I, I guess, in a way that like, you know, the, uh, can almost sort of uh, prevent kind of imagination or like to sort of prevent, like hinder yeah. the idea that like, you know, you can sort of build better worlds and everything. Um, and so like almost kind of keeps you contained in some ways. Um, I don't know whether I've like butchered that understanding, but I wondered whether like, yeah, you could talk to me a bit more about like how you were thinking, like in terms of like these types of the, the capability, the surveillance capabilities of these technologies, how do they affect the characters in the novel? And I guess particularly like how the approaches that these two activist groups take, both of which have conflicts over like what they're doing and how they do it. Sure. Well, let's talk then about um, A Fierce Blue Fire, which is the more mainstream environmental group uh, in, in the book. And I think like before I launch into my my standard rant on uh, social media and surveillance capitalism, I should say like I have an Instagram account. So please, you know, 
uh, smash those likes. Um, but, uh, <laughs> we're all look like the whole, uh, you know, the whole I, thing is we we don't yeah we don't like computers, but we're all part yeah. of the slop. So like you know don't no no right, embarrassment right, right. there. Uh, well, but I think like it shows the the bind that we've gotten ourselves into, right? Um, where somebody who is even as disgusted and alienated and like thinks uh, social media is evil as as me like it's sort of forced to engage with it because it is the public square. Now it has commandeered the public square. Um, and when I quit Twitter, uh, back in 2020 and sort of deactivated Facebook and started to get away from this stuff, you know, I was faced with this, uh, conundrum, which is that like, you're, it's really hard to be an author. It's really hard to be an artist without having some sort of that connectivity so, you know, it's the network mm-hmm. effect, that, a connectivity to what everybody, uh, everybody else is on, what platforms they're engaging with, right? And I sort of have felt it acutely um, as the Dalish has debuted in the sense that uh, I would probably be doing, you know, the book would be selling better if I was on more of these platforms, sort of pushing my, my, my heroin on it, right? Um, right? And that, I think, is sort of, for me, one of the scariest elements is that We've lost a, a, we've lost the ability to do our, like, sort of express ourselves, be artistic, have comments, have yeah. political opinions, have ideas that don't have to be filtered through what are effectively the algorithms of billionaires sitting in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, buying themselves mm. super yachts, right? This, I think, is yeah. incredibly troubling, right? So it's not just, that social media platforms have commandeered the public square. They are now the public square, right? Yeah. And, you know, these are not, uh, you know, benevolent, um, you know, we sort of picture them as public utilities, uh, but they're not. Mm. And so activism, like everything else that occurs in the public square, has been subsumed by the all-encompassing damage that surveillance capitalism has wrought in our lives, right? Um, And so, you know, what we have to remember and it's so hard to remember is that social media is nihilistic, right? It does not care about the Arab Spring, does not care about the Me Too movement, it does not care about Black Lives Matter, abortion, or the climate crisis. You know, what it cares about is engagement. And therefore, as soon as I post my two cents about whatever it is, issue it might be, uh, you know, that platform is actively looking to create the counterweight to that. So it goes looking mm-hmm. for people to engage who hate what people are saying about the climate crisis, about Black Lives Matter, about violence against women. You know, so we're talking about a machine that's designed to produce controversy, anxiety, alienation, and depression. Right. Um, yeah. And so, you know, as difficult as this thought is to keep in mind, every time we engage with one of these platforms about something we care about, we are also fueling the resistance to that thing we care about. It's built yeah, no, into exactly. the system. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. I think, again, this is like something that like we talk about a lot in different ways. And it's like one of those, you know, and it's kind of that sort of curse where it's sort of like, you know, you have to sort of, you know, well, I don't even know if you have to engage with it, but it's kind of, there's almost a prima facie that like, yeah, if you don't, then like your kind of quote unquote performance is going to sort of be like suffer as a result. And like the kind of broader idea that, oh, if you're producing media, especially media about stuff that people like care about or should care about, um, you know, it's not enough to just kind of like make the case for like, no, this is why you should care about it. But it sort of like gets the kind of attention that it deserves on the basis of this being in your case, like, you know, addressing like the most existential question of our time. Um, for us, 
also asking that question, but maybe like, you know, l- to a lesser degree than like the climate crisis. Um, but then there's always this sort of thinking about like, oh no, we sort of need to perform in particular ways. And that means that we are yeah. kind of embedded to the logic of the systems that we kind of resent. Um, but I've kind of like, you know, and I guess this is also one of the things that I kind of got with the Fierce Blue Fire group where, you know, the criticism that they're sort of getting is that they have to kind of engage with the system in some capacity, be it like technological systems or political systems. And you can kind of see like in aspects of a novel where it's like, oh, you know, even the characters kind of openly saying that, oh, is engaging with these systems actually kind of like undermining the activism that we're doing, right? If like, ultimately we are not as powerful as these institutions, but in order, you know, is kind of a small amount of progress better than nothing at all or... In the case of the, as you mentioned, like in the case of a crisis that requires like you know so much care and so much attention, if not like all of your care and all of your attention, because it really pertains mm-hmm. to generational survival. You know, are right. these more extreme methods, which include like you know, in the case of the extreme climate, like the you know the climate radicals, like kind of disengaging with technology entirely is that sort of like the actual, yeah, actually like the more logical solution. Like, I don't think the novel necessarily like answers and nor should it like really answer that question. Right. But it did feel to me like it was one of the questions that you were sort of asking throughout. Absolutely. And, and I think like, you know, if I was a worse writer, uh, I would have didactically uh, told the audience exactly the answer to all of this. Right. Um, But you know, hopefully the novel thrives in, in the nuance of even if I, the author, disagree with some of these characters, they're making their points effectively. And the, the reader right. is, is unsure of who is correct in this argument. Um, because it's, it is, again, like I, I keep saying, like we're, it's hard to remember we're facing such an unprecedented situation, so, you know, and yeah. with, not just with the climate crisis, but with our technological engagement with each other, right? And so the formation of a social movement is not what it has been uh, across the, yeah. you know, the past two centuries. Um, and yeah, I, I just think there's a, there's a way in which uh, the effectiveness of our activism and of our political, uh, it, it, of the moral imperative to do something about this is being incredibly negatively affected by all these, these technologies that we engage with every day. Yeah. I suppose like also one of the things that, you know, you talk about in your novel, um, Andreas Malm talks about in How to Blow Up a Pipeline is this kind of idea about whether you sort of, how much of the public you need to sort of get on your side in order for like a, like a real climate justice movement to be functional. And so again, I think it it goes back to this whole thing about like, I don't think you can sort of avoid media engagement. I think if anything, and he mentions a couple of climate groups that sort of decided that like they were going to sort of take drastic measures and it didn't matter how much like negative press they got um, because ultimately yeah. like, you know, the, the, what they were fighting for was for something bigger only to then realize that no, actually like they did kind of need some public support. Right. And part yeah. of that was also to kind of like get to like define like the terms of reference. Right. And so I guess like there's kind of, and again, this isn't a question like that I would like you to answer, but it's more like an observation that, for any type, like, I think actually that you're completely right in the broader idea that like these technologies make it really hard to organize generally, partly because the systems are sort of built to kind of, you know, uh, throw opposition back at you, be it like controlled opposition or just be it like the more chaotic elements of like naturally what being in like in a big social media network is like. 
But I, I yeah. wonder whether it also means that like for people who haven't grown up with like activist histories or for people who like, you know, I think in the UK, for example, remarkably, like, you know, very few people are sort of taught about activist history for most of their lives. And so right. your kind of broader ideas about like, well, to kind of start doing it, you need to use these technologies. And, it, and again, like, I think you put it in a really good way where it's like, it feels absurd to kind of recognize that no, these systems aren't designed. In fact, if anything, their supporters are supposed to like design to best designed to make you feel more atomized, right? They're designed to kind of like yes. make you feel much more individualistic, whether that be it in a sort of like more exactly. empowered way or a less empowered way, then like it feels counterproductive, but we can't actually imagine what an activist movement without those things look like. And that sort of seems to be the crisis that FBF faces like quite a lot, like throughout the novel. Um, but like the six degrees, like some of the six degrees people certainly do. Um, and then by extension, you then have all these other parties, be it like the venture capital funds or like the shadowy investors and stuff that kind of benefit from keeping these systems sort of going on, regardless of who they're funding and who they're sabotaging. It almost feels like these types of activist groups that are trying to sort of make a positive change. And we, you know, we see like kind of mid to like sort of three quarters from the novel that like, oh, actually like these people are just, you know, they, they might actually just be like pawns for lack of a better term in this like much bigger game of financial forces that they have no real control over. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> So that was, that was like kind novel, of like, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a good read. <laughs> but I guess, yeah, yeah. I mean, like the other, like, I guess in terms of those, all those other, those kind of like the forces of capital and everything. Um, again, I wondered like how you sort of contextualize those, because I think there's a, there's a reveal, like kind of at that point where I'm just like, holy shit, like, you know, didn't, I didn't, I really didn't see that coming, but also it kind of makes complete sense. Um, but it also does feel right. like kind of depressing in some ways where it's just like, even kind of the most radical groups end up sort of being at best sort of coerced, but in some ways also being co-opted into sort of playing a playing into a system that they have no control over. And what better way of kind of encapturing the sort of almost the feeling of futility towards the fight, like towards the climate crisis, than this broader idea that like the people who actually have the most power are much more willing to kind of like set groups against each other than to kind of make very small changes that could really, really improve things materially. Yeah. I mean, I, I, concocted a lot of this book, you know, by reading history, especially about social movements. And I think like in informing different tactics of the climate crisis, there have been many act activists who have looked to history for ideas, for examples, for things that worked. Um, and in writing the book, uh, that was obviously an aim. Uh, but another aim was to look at where uh, activist movements fail and why they failed and how they failed and why social movements disintegrated and mm -hmm. what forces um, led led them to uh to fail to capture the public imagination to uh be unable to overturn the power structure etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know um one of the things i kept coming back to is like all those movements that failed could actually they can afford mm. to fail and human civilization or like human beings ro roll right on you know we we go yeah. we go on with the world uh, in various ways and this is the time we can't miss right and so I often think about, you know, looking at like the anarchist movies movement of the early, uh, of the early part of 20th century and, uh, in, especially how, you know, when they started off by, by bombing, uh, you know, class trader, or, you know, uh, rich people, basically, uh, how they did so much more to turn the working class against their cause than they did right, yeah. towards, uh, actually rising up against, 
uh, a very brutal power structure. And I think there's, you know, so, sort of similar elements to that in, in the movements of the 1960s, which after the Weathermen and a bunch of other uh, radical leftist groups mm-hmm. turned to bombing, uh, you know, but there were so many bombs going off every week in the United States during the 70s. Sure. Uh, it's, it's sort of like remarkable that that's not, you know, more widely known. Um, and how that sort of helped play into the neoliberal revolution of the 1980s and Reaganism and Thatcherism, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time thinking about the ways in which the radical elements of social movements can actually backfire in, in really damaging ways. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and like, I imagine that's also sort of a problem that like, you know, uh, we're sort of dealing with like right now and like various kind of instances too. And it's kind of, and again, because I, I'm coming at this from like a perspective, like a media perspective where, mm-hmm. you know, as like reporters and journalists and stuff, we want to kind of like highlight particular causes. And I do wonder sometimes whether like at what point, like whether the highlighting of it, especially when it's sort of rendered as I think, as you mentioned, like earlier into the episode, like when it's rendered into content and it kind of becomes this thing to react to. Right. And again, as you react and the counter reaction. And so I do sometimes wonder whether like the kind of the act of like reportage, especially when you are sort of embedded or, um, kind of coerced into sort of using these systems, whether they then kind of work to undermine these types of movements, be it like the climate movement, but also, I guess, a contemporary example that you're sort of involved with, like in terms of writer's strikes, for example, or other yes. types of like union strikes in the UK, where I have sort of seen, for example, that lots of kind of well-meaning journalists that have been trying to cover stories on uh, the pays of, you know, the pay of medical workers, the pay of uh, gig economy workers and stuff um, has not been met with just like, oh shit, like how are we sort of living in a kind of a rich country where people can't afford to eat and where they're sort of like, can't even afford to sort of go to the toilet, like, you know, properly. And that being sort of almost kind of twisted and then thrown back as being either kind of being distorted into like a culture war issue of some form, or at the very least kind of being used to sort of really undermine any kind of like idea of broader solidarity. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Now it's a really, really good point. Uh, and yeah, and again, it goes to that that incredibly complex catch twenty two we all find ourselves in, where uh, you know, as soon as the resistance arises, it is commodified and and sold, and, and it's just content for uh, you know people to resist in other ways. I, there, I don't know if you watched Succession, but there was this like really poignant and horrifying line on the last episode where you know one of these awful Murdoch like kids is talking about yeah. the fascist guy running for president he's like well he's just content like anything else you know yeah um and and i think that's exactly sort of the state we find ourselves in where it is so hard to to uh to do anything that isn't immediately uh Mm. consumed by by this bizarre you know technological uh uh box we've created for ourselves although we should still try i should say this i don't want this to come across like i feel no well i mean actually this you, you kind of segued into like my final section because i'm also conscious about time but it was like a perfect segue as well um i was also going to add that like i hope i i think the uh, episode succession should be out by the time this comes out only because people have gotten mad at me for like leaking out spoilers because of like the time <laughs> difference uh yeah. so, so so don't get mad at me if that was if that if that like or don't get mad mm-hmm. at Stephen if that was a spoiler just just yeah, yeah, up yeah. and deal with it um but, um yeah it's a, like the segue to my final section uh is actually like you know you touched on it just now which is the feeling of like i guess for lack of a better term climate doomerism 
Um, just yeah. sort of like the, you know, the broader thing about like, well, you're not going to be able to change the system because everything, and because this is such a kind of like global systemic issue, like you have too many forces against you. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, obviously like Andreas Mom sort of talks about kind of why this is sort of a defeating project. He references a book that I can't, I don't remember the name of, but like he has quite a long section just about like why climate doomerism is both like not pragmatic, but also just as a morally like defunct position. Agreed. Um, but I think that being said, because I read your book before I read uh, House Blow of a Pipeline, I think there was definitely this part of me that even as I got to the end, I was like, oh, like, because your novel didn't end necessarily on like a quote unquote positive note. Um, I don't know whether you would disagree with that. I think like things I, had to get really, really bad in the universe of your novel before like a really what seems to sort of be like a legislatively significant change took place. Right. Um, and so I can imagine yeah. it's quite easy to sort of come back from that to be like, oh, like, okay, so basically lots of shit has to be destroyed and a lot of people have to die before, you know, and even at the end, there's like a, there's a really beautiful monologue that one of your characters um, recites when like, uh, just towards the end where he's like writing or like he's talking to like his, uh, his child and just being like, I just genuinely don't know if this world is going to be like a safe place for you. Um, and that really, to me, like that sort of really hits at the heart of like some of the climate doomerism that I've seen both online and in real life. Um, but I wondered whether you had any thoughts on that, like coming out of your novel, because I know that you said, I think it was on the Seth Meyers show where like, you know, again, you had said something really, like really, really um, profound. Uh, I think we might clip it here, Devin, but the link is in the show notes. So you have spent all this time, you've talked to scientists, you wrote this book about how bad things could be. And yet, I think it's important to say you still have hope. Where does your hope come from? Yeah. Okay. So it's not like in the course of writing this novel, I didn't feel overwhelming, constant despair. Uh, I won't lie about that. I think where I arrived, though, is that, oddly enough, there is joy and there's privilege in being alive in a time when our actions as citizens and as agents of history will echo for what is effectively the eternity of human civilization. You know, we have these precious few years left to set in motion epic change, uh, and we have every tool we need to rapidly decarbonize the global economy. Renewables are the cheapest energy, right? We have the IRA now, the Inflation Reduction Act, and this puts power into the hands of every, everybody, state, local, like uh, school boards. Like, look down to your school board. Like, down to that level, we have power to decarbonize. We crush demand for fossil fuels by rapidly electrifying everything. We keep pressure on the big banks to stop financing the destruction of our world. And we vote every election, no matter what. And we vote for people who actually treat this crisis like it's the biggest emergency we have. Yes. That's something... I think we can all agree on but that kind of made me sort of come away with like quite a lot of hope and energy and so i wondered whether like yeah how you reconciled both of those things yeah absolutely well you know my novel lands on a knife's edge because humanity is going to be living on a knife's edge for the next three generations at least right like this is a problem that is so far gone and so out of control you know that and this is what my book is about the great drama of human history is going to have to unfold uh to to you know do something about it, right? Um, mm. But I think for me, what I, you know, as I said in the clip, is is what we're ignoring is is that the climate crisis is also an opportunity. I mean, that's what a crisis is. You fall on one side or the other. And it's an opportunity to build the more just, equitable, and prosperous world that we, you know, so many of us have spent our lives and so many of our ancestors have spent their lives envisioning, right? Um, mm. And sometimes I think about the wild gains in 
sort of renewable energy technology that have come along just in the last five years, let alone the last 10 years, right? Uh, solar and wind power being now the cheapest forms of energy on the planet. And what I think about is the way in which as those forms of energy come online, as, you know, just air pollution, forget climate pollution is reduced, the gains in human health, the gains in human well-being, they're going to come from that, from electrification alone. Uh, and I, I think that like in the broad context of human history, this is really a moment when we will look at our relationship to our planet, to the one and only home we will ever have. Um, mm. and we will, we will change in the long term. And I just think what a fucking amazing thing to be a part of a generation that is going to be struggling to implement that change. And I agree, this is terrifying. And I agree sometimes I do wonder if we're going to make it, but at the same time, like, when I, when I talk to all the people who are working on this relentlessly and with such passion and such courage, you know, they're not sitting mm. on Twitter bitching about climate doom. They're doing <laughs> something about it. Yeah. And so I guess that would be yeah. my challenge. Yeah, go ahead, please. I'm just ranting on my soapbox here. No, no, because that's actually a really good point. Because all I was going to say was that was like a really good opportunity to talk about, well, okay, um, doing stuff about it, uh, you know, in terms of like building institutions, building kind of like resistance groups, uh, obviously in the novel, um, there is like a uh, there's a scene at the midway point during what is kind of a sort of alternate, not an alternate version, but like a subsequent version of like an occupation in Washington where they build something that is kind of like kind kind of like an occupy um, movement. Uh, I think yeah. again, Andreas Malmark has like an actual technical definition for this, but like these types of like climate camps where um, it it you know it serves as more than just kind of an occupation space. They kind of re envision what education looks like, re envision like what kind of childcare looks like, and all you know, basically trying to sort of almost these crucibles of like a social movement with a kind of real kind of political purpose. Um, and I wondered whether like in terms of organizing these types of institutions, ones that can both challenge electoral politics, but also kind of different forms of almost like exuding like different forms of political participation. Uh, were there any, was there anything that any of like the people that you spoke to or any of the sort of groups that you were observing, what types of, uh, not solutions per se, but what types of kind of, uh, you know, grassroots institutions were they kind of proposing that people should be kind of looking towards in order to sort of build, not just resistance to, um, fossil fuel, uh, the fossil fuel industry, but to actually like build a kind of lasting social justice movement where climate is at its heart, but not necessarily like the only thing kind of driving it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think my my view of this is 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 much more expansive. Like I do think these individual groups uh are incredibly important and joining them is certainly a, a fruitful and and excellent way to spend one's time. But that sort of this ethic uh of what is essentially, you know, just humanism combined with a sense of one's place on this planet uh and it's not more complicated than that. That that is that that becomes more ingrained in sort of our ourselves in our in our spirits, our lives, our cultures, uh, our families, our friends. That it becomes something that we just consider to be a natural sort of thing we all believe in and work for, right? Um, and the thing about the climate crisis and sort of our social crisis of inequality and the challenge to democracy, uh, which I think are, are deeply related. Um, the, the good news is that there's so many ways to actually do this and not all of them are, are being on a picket line, right? Like I'm about to go do, be on a picket line for this <laughs> WGA strike. Uh, and I, I think unions are, are incredibly important um, uh, tool uh, mm -hmm. for challenging sort of the, the concentrated economic and political power. 
that that rules us all right now. Um, but the other sort of things I always think about is what, what do we have to do to turn the climate crisis around? Well, we have to deploy renewable energy at massive scale and very, very quickly, right? So nobody would consider becoming a union electrician to be this radical act of political activism, but it, it kind of is, right? Like yeah. the U.S. is going to need a million more electricians in the next 10 years to build out the renewables we're going to need to keep the planet to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So that is actually one of the, you know, the key cogs in our entire civilization right now that we need to think about and the roles we need to fill. We need to challenge fossil mm-hmm. fuels everywhere all the time. Now, that can be as simple as like in your local town, banning natural gas hookups and new construction, stopping the construction of new gas stations, deploying uh, electric vehicle charging stations. You know, and then there's the element, the third, this third sort of pillar of this, which is we're going to have to adapt to what we've already done. Right. And that uh, that mm-hmm. adaptation is is comes in so many ways. It's not just mutual aid. It's not just, you know, uh, uh, disaster relief. It's it's becoming a nurse, you know, working in public health, working, uh, you know, in low income communities where the effects of heat uh, and sort of disease borne vectors uh, become become a, uh, an enormous problem. Mm. And I, you know, again, I don't mean to be on my soapbox here. But like, to me, it's just like the opportunities for engagement are so enormous. And I really wish, like, if I had one wish, it would be that people get off Twitter and and get out into the real world and start affecting, uh, you know, utilizing that space to deal with their grief and deal with their anxiety. Um, Yeah. But yeah. Or no, I agree. Also, whatever. I, you know, I'm not here to badger <laughs> no, anyone. We, no, we're, we're endorsing the former. Don't do not do the latter. Uh, unless it's a Chevy yeah. episode. Uh, no, yeah, Chevy episode, <laughs> then go outside. Yeah. Um, no, I think this right. was great. I think this was also a great place to end it. So, Stephen, thank you so much for uh, coming on. We really appreciate it. Um, if people like, if, if I guess they have to, if you're in the UK or in Europe, I guess you do have to order the book from the US. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes, but like, what? where's the best place to actually buy the book if people want to read it? And I definitely like recommend um either for you to read it or if there's someone in your family that like just doesn't get it but does enjoy reading like get them this i think it'll be a really good uh way into all this yeah we i should say like this is all sounded very dense but like uh as my mom my mom at one of my readings stopped the reading basically to say he's making it sound very sciencey and dull but it's actually quite a thriller (laughs) uh and then she talked for five minutes about how excited she was and how it made her miss her massage because she was so gripped by a certain chapter. So uh, <laughs> listen to my mom, pick it up, even if you think I sound like a nerd. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, an independent bookstore is always a great place to buy a book. Yeah, I think that, yeah, there must be like some around that you can use and they like, I've, I've used them before. Anyway, we'll put the link into the show notes. Uh, right. And uh, yeah, do that. Definitely do that. Definitely gift it. If like you think that would be really helpful. Um, yeah, so Stephen, thank you so much uh, for coming on and we'll hope to catch you again soon when you write like another good novel or, you know, uh, essays or, you know, whatever. And also, I guess I just wanted to say before you finally go, just like, thank you for writing it because I do think that it was like such a good way into really understanding like the human stakes of the subject in a way that like I don't think has sort of been articulated in many other like novels. And that's not to sort of take away from their merits or their research or anything. I just think that it was just like a very, very kind of compelling story of like what is effectively like the most uh, pressing moment of our, well, the pressing sort of issue of our time. Well, thank you so much, Hussein. And it was a, it was a real pleasure talking to you again. So thanks for having me on. Thank you.